United Nations is the successor organization of the League of Nations, the latter of which was founded following World War I and was ultimately considered not fit for purpose. It was meant to help prevent future warfare on a global scale, but didn't have many tools for doing so, and it generally relied on the strength of the victorious World War I allied nations for enforcement, some of which, the US included, didn't even bother to formally join the League. Then World War II happened, so yeah, not great at preventing warfare. The UN, in contrast, was formed in the wake of World War II, so about 25 years after the League was established, and it was tasked with all sorts of things, including keeping the peace on a global scale, but also managing and delivering humanitarian aid, protecting and expanding human rights, promoting sustainable projects, and generally maintaining a global legal structure by which the whole of the world's governments would need to abide. A pretty tall order, but one that was made more doable by the direct involvement of the two superpowers that emerged from World War II, the United States and the Soviet Union, and their adherence to the various monitoring programs meant to keep tabs on military buildups and movements, and their pushing for decolonization efforts, which led to a wave of freed colonies in the 1960s in particular. That all helped expand the initial group of 51 member nations to 193 as of 2023, which is almost every officially recognized nation on the planet. After the Cold War, when peacekeeping efforts became a little less pressing and expensive at the high end, monitoring nukes and such, but more widespread and scattered because of a flood of new conflict-prone areas during the first half of the decade, the UN was granted additional resources and bandwidth to invest in these and other missions, so it expanded into what it called multi-dimensional missions, including grand tasks like helping new nations establish sustainable governments, monitoring human rights in traditionally human rights-violating regions, and making sure elections were conducted fairly and legally, all of which should theoretically help with that larger omni-mission of making sure the world is more peaceful, has more human rights, sturdier government systems, and other such foundational social and managerial elements tend to be associated with less conflict and warfare. Also vital to that larger conception of how to keep everyone playing nice with each other, though, is making sure the international monetary system works smoothly and fairly, ensuring there are not winners and losers, but instead a whole lot of different sorts of winners, everyone able to profit from dealing with everyone else, building economic ties between nations so that it's more profitable to trade than to fight. Sustaining such a system requires all sorts of rules and conventions, and agencies capable of enforcing said rules and conventions. So the United Nations established the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, when it formed in 1945, at the Bretton Woods Conference, which was officially called the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference, where, among other things, it was decided what was called the Bretton Woods system would be used to manage global financial markets and economic relations moving forward. What I'd like to talk about today is the IMF, 
how this system is used and is functioning today, and alternatives that have arisen in recent years, challenging what's become the default means of dealing with global sovereign debt crises. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Sovereign, or government debt, is issued by governmental bodies to raise money that can then be used for specific projects or to keep normal government functions churning along. Governments typically use what are called debt instruments like bonds or bills to generate money in this way, investors buying bonds that will pay out a bit more than they cost to buy at some point in the future, for instance. And that allows said governments to keep cash flow at proper levels, while also allowing them to pull in more money than usual when warranted, when they want to pay off some other debt they've accumulated, for instance, or when they are keen to engage in some industry-specific refurbishment or upgrade and want to raise money for that effort. Most governments also have other debt obligations on their balance sheets, like pension responsibilities for government employees and social security payments, guaranteed to all citizens who paid into that system over the course of their working lives. The total debt of all kinds, from top to bottom, from the federal to the local level, is aggregated into what is called general government debt, and this is the metric typically used to tally the gross debt of a given government entity. We can weigh this tally in slightly different ways, depending on whether we choose to gauge the market value of debt, meaning what it would be worth in exchange for cash on a given day based on market conditions, or the nominal value of debt, which is based on how much debt is owed to the creditor. So if a bond is worth less before full maturity, that would influence the market value of that debt instrument, but the nominal value would take the full face value of that bond into account. Governments often accumulate debt because of investments made in their social services and their economy. So while there are instances of governments going into debt because of corruption and things like that, usually, if a government owes money, it's mostly because it made some kind of investment that is expected to pay off at some point in the future, or because it is sustaining what it thinks is the proper level of services, and it doesn't pull in enough money in taxes currently to pay for all those services. There is disagreement about how much accumulated debt matters in wealthy countries that, unless something dramatic changes, will absolutely be able to afford their debt payments and the interest that debt accumulates. Some don't like this approach on ideological grounds, some think it is silly to accrue debt and to be forced to pay interest, while others see it as being similar to how the larger economic system works, with banks tending to loan out money that they do not have on hand in order to generate their own interest and income and stoke economic activity at a much larger scale than would be doable if they stuck with only loaning out what they physically had in the vault. It's been argued that nations that don't accumulate debt grow less fast and generate less overall wealth over time because they're not using the leverage they have available to them. Others have contested this argument, though, suggesting that more wealth can be generated over time more stably if a nation is not burdened with those additional interest payments. Whatever the case may actually be for wealthier nations, debt can become a real issue for poorer nations, as they are not as solidly positioned to pay off both their debt and the interest it accrues, and that can lead to default, not paying their creditors, which in turn can result in a lowered debt rating, 
which then makes it more expensive for them to borrow money in the future, a cycle that can make everything more expensive for them and diminish their ability to make investments and even pay for basic, fundamental services and infrastructure. More debt can also lead to inflation if the central government buys up too much government debt as part of a larger effort to issue more local currency. And it can lead to complications related to exchange rates, especially for countries that are not wealthy and which have to import a significant volume of fundamentals like food and energy products. That latter issue has been especially pressing for several nations of late, including for Pakistan, a nation of 230 million people that has seen a series of environmental disasters that have amplified already iffy economic conditions in the country. Pakistan's economy was short about $22 billion just to service its existing external debt, debt that needed to be paid to other nations and international creditors, and to finance its 2024 financial year account. Being a government, it has money and the ability to print more money should it ever decide to do so, but it only has about $3.5 billion in foreign reserves, meaning in other currencies like US dollars, and that leaves it far short of that $22 billion it needs to pay out in foreign currencies in the near future. Pakistan's economy has done badly enough of late that its credit rating, as determined by the three international credit rating agencies that governments tend to look at for such things, has dropped meaningfully down to CCC+, CAA3, and CCC- from Standard & Poor's Moody's and Fitch, respectively, which marks Pakistani debt as just above speculative grade. Not good. And that speculative, risky nature makes getting debt more expensive because creditors then demand more interest on the money they loan to account for that increased risk. All of which made some kind of large-scale assistance necessary. So the Pakistani government asked the IMF for help, and it needed this help by July 1st, 2023, as that is when the new financial period began. At essentially the very last minute, the news of this agreement was dropped on June 30th. The IMF reached a staff-level agreement with Pakistan to give them access to $3 billion, enough to help them avoid an immediate debt default and cover the cost of things like food and energy products for long enough that they should be able to get other debt-related relief lined up. This is more than was expected. The government was hoping to get the balance of an earlier IMF bailout package, which would have been about $2.5 billion, from a total pot of $6.5 billion, all of which was originally agreed in 2019. That package expired last week, so there was a scramble to get that last bit of money out before it disappeared, and this new arrangement would seem to build on that prior one, which alongside that additional available money also provides policy and framework support to pull other investments and credit into the country from other sources. So the IMF is giving the Pakistani government more immediate support but also kind of forcing them to make changes in how they spend and service debt, which in turn will make it more likely that other creditors will offer them debt at relatively affordable prices because they are being forced to be more economically responsible by this big international entity. That type of forced responsibility, though, is at the root of why so many entities, from governments to some types of nonprofit organizations, do not like the IMF. 
They provide help to governments that are struggling and which might otherwise collapse into a debt spiral, everything becoming worse. But the cost of that aid is often something close to, or just over the cusp of, austerity, which in practice means the government cannot invest as much in things it wants to invest in, has to raise taxes, and basically has to shore up its economic position to prove to the IMF that it's not just going to take this money and then find itself in the same bad position again within a couple of years. They want to see evidence of effort toward a better financial state, with better being defined in this case as less debt, more income, and more responsible spending, responsible as defined by the IMF. This sort of pressure can look a lot like finger-wagging to those on the receiving end of it, as the wealthiest nations in the world are also heavily in debt, spending, 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 and then spending some more, all of them able to service that debt, sure, but also benefiting from better interest rates, so the debt is cheaper. And in some cases, like with the United States, these nations are not concerned about foreign reserves because the dominant currency used for many basics, like energy products and food, is USDs. And the same is true of other sorts of currencies like the euro for other vital products. There are structural benefits to being a wealthy nation then, and poorer nations, though they don't always have the most efficient and thrifty spending habits, splurging on stuff they can't afford, also get less for the same money invested, which many experts consider to be a sort of self-perpetuating element of this system. Once you become poor, it's difficult to become not poor, even if you receive assistance meant to help you climb out of that hole. This new Pakistan deal will help the Pakistani government increase their GDP by about 0.4% because of the demands made by the IMF as a condition to receive this new tranche of money. That increase, the result of dramatically lowering spending and introducing new taxes that will raise over $1.34 billion for the government. But that adjustment will be painful, including for everyday people who will no longer enjoy subsidies on energy prices, will themselves have trouble affording debt, as the government's key policy rate has been further hiked, raising interest rates, and due to other reforms to the country's energy sector, which could be squeezed and thus become less effective or less invested in, all because the IMF demanded they do so. There's a latent trade-off in this sort of relationship and this sort of international economic system then, which provides a lender of last resort, but which also can force reforms on governments that do not necessarily want those reforms, and which might perceive them to be heavy-handed and condescending, reducing their capacity to make what might be decent investments for the long haul in favor of what might seem like short-term monetary shoring up. The alternative to the IMF metagovernmental agency approach to dealing with this sort of problem is borrowing from other governments bilaterally or from government collectives. The Paris Club, for instance, is made up of a group of 22 permanent national members, all of them fairly wealthy. Australia, Belgium, Canada, the US and UK, and South Korea among them and they provide what's called debt rescheduling, which in practice often means figuring out ways as a group of wealthy countries working together to either push back payments on debt for cash-strapped nations, or figuring out ways to reduce that debt, often by taking on some of the risk and burden themselves. This group was highly influential 
for much of the 20th century, and nations from around the world would come to them, seeking help in coping with their debt burdens. Since 1956, they have signed more than 400 agreements with 90 countries, helping them deal with more than $583 billion in debt. The Paris Club aims to fill a similar niche to the IMF, basically ensuring the continuation and health of the global economic system and the international monetary system upon which it's predicated by reducing pressure on that system and consequently reducing the likelihood of a debt crisis that spirals out of control and sucks everyone in. This could be seen as another facet of that larger UN goal of preventing the outbreak of war and generally making everyone happier and healthier and encouraging more trading with each other, engaging peacefully rather than with violence. But it's also a means for these nations to re-establish their global influence, as being a Paris Club member means you are one of the savior nations that other nations, which might need you someday, will want to kowtow to in various ways. That's the theory, at least. So there are genuinely beneficent rationales behind this sort of bailout effort, but those rationales are blended with somewhat self-serving versions of the same. Allowing governments to achieve more influence and to protect their status and well-being by preventing some kind of large international economic spin-out. Interestingly, the Paris Club has not been quite so influential in recent decades as a new money spigot owned by the Chinese government has turned on and been sending a cascade of economic resources across the poorer world, making those traditional, mostly Western sources a little bit less desirable, by some metrics and recipients at least. The IMF and Paris Club tied system of bailouts require the debtor countries jump through a lot of hoops, and requires that they wait at times many months to receive their bailout money, while also sometimes dramatically changing their economies to include new austerity measures and taxes and so on. This makes good sense through the lens of wanting to make it more likely that the country receiving this bailout will do better economically moving forward, which in turn can help them attract new creditors and investors. But it's also onerous and, from some perspectives, belittling and condescending and embarrassing, and it pushes at times highly authoritarian or otherwise non-liberal, non-democratic nations into the influence orbit and into the debt of mostly wealthy, mostly liberal democratic governments. This system, then, has often been biased toward particular ways of structuring governments and economies, and that's made it trickier for some nations and leaders to get the assistance they're looking for on terms they can stomach and sell to their citizenry and supporters. For the past 15 years or so, though, China has provided an alternative path these nations might opt to take instead. Estimates about the scale of Chinese investment of this kind vary from somewhere just shy of $500 billion to as much as a trillion dollars since 2008 alone. This has made China by far the largest bilateral creditor in the world, meaning providing credit from their government to another government directly. And that's created a real problem for the mostly Western governments that relied upon this economic lever to some degree at least, to spread their influence and values globally. This money from China, alongside similar funds from nations like Venezuela and Saudi Arabia, have been dubbed 
rogue aid by some liberal democratic governments that see them as threats to the global, mostly capitalistic, mostly democratic order. They see these funds as basically propping up dictators and other top-down repressive governments, which makes it more difficult for them to try to nudge these governments in a different direction. This Chinese money has given these debtor governments a means of servicing their debts without having to go to these misaligned nations and institutions then, which unto itself has been disruptive to those nations and institutions' goals. It has also given China far more influence in these parts of the world, as they are now the beneficent entity that these governments have to win over. And it gives China substantial economic access and leverage, including access to raw materials like metal and lumber and fuel and other similar goods that it requires on just a staggering scale in order to perpetuate its growth. And a lot of those resources come from these poorer nations. And as part of the bilateral deals it strikes with them, China tends to get favored nation status when it comes to scooping those up. China's deals seldom require much in the way of new economic practices or rules. It doesn't enforce austerity on the debtor nation, instead mostly saying something like, hey, we'll give you a bunch of money, and you just have to spend some of that money on us building this new mine and this new highway system and railroad in your country. And that has allowed China to prop up its own sprawling business network while also putting into place new economic engines, which in some cases help that recipient nation generate more money over time, but which either way ties it even more tightly to China as that mine's resources will then be sold to China and more of its infrastructure will be reliant on hiring Chinese companies for construction and maintenance purposes. The outcomes of this type of Chinese investment have been mixed. Many nations that have taken Chinese money have been left in what's sometimes called a debt trap, putting them into near-perpetual debt to China, which gives the Chinese government even more leverage, and in some cases allows them to take over valuable infrastructure, like docks and railroads. It also allows debtor nations to take on still more debt, which can lead to some short-term benefits, but which does little to force any kind of debt-related corrective, which means the debt problem can become worse and worse, with China granting them more and more money if they ask for it. The long-term consequences of such an approach have been questioned, but we haven't seen this play out long enough to say for certain if at some point this much money flooding into an economic system can naturally nudge it into becoming more sustainable, the theory being that maybe more resources will lead to more and better economic investments, which over time will lead to more assets that then allow these debtor nations to generate enough money to pay off their debts, keeping those upgraded economic engines intact as they do so. We'll have to wait and see about that, but most of the analysis not coming out of China is fairly pessimistic on the matter. Over the past few years, following the dawn of the COVID-19 pandemic, some of these relationships and dynamics have been questioned and rethought, with the Paris Club and IMF aiming to do more wholesale debt forgiveness rather than restructuring, and China in many cases refusing to even consider taking a small haircut on what they are owed by their debtor nations, leaving many of them struggling to repay their debts, much less the interest on those debts, and the Chinese economy suffering a bit as a result. 
For their part, the IMF and several large governments have been calling on China to commit to some kind of debt relief program, and there have been a few small indications that the Chinese government might be willing to do something like that under the right circumstances, especially if the IMF gets involved and reduces their risk, China's risk, including, in some cases, by helping debtor countries restructure their economies in the very way those debtor nations were hoping to avoid by going with Chinese debt. While we've seen that tiny bit of cross-pollination between these polarized visions for handling international debt issues, though, some experts worry such combined efforts will mostly result in the worst of both models, leaving poorer countries burdened with both bureaucratic hoops and unforgivable debt to China unless something fundamental changes in the way we manage the global financial system, which is unlikely at the moment at least. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Valuable Humans in Transit and Other Stories by GNTM, which is the pen name of the author Sam Hughes. This is a collection of short science fiction-y stories. They're very experimental compared to a lot of the other science fiction short story collections that I've read in the past several years. And I don't mean that in the sense that you should be concerned about picking this up and reading it, worried that you won't enjoy it. It reads just as well as any other book in that genre with stories of this duration. But it experiments a lot with the communication mediums being used within the stories, splitting the stories a little bit so that they take place in segments across the span of the book. And the concepts themselves are quite interesting. Some are a little bit twisted and disturbing in unfortunately realistic and worrying ways, but that's part of its charm, I think. It's a very thinky sort of book and very entertaining and interesting as well. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Valuable Humans in Transit and Other Stories by GNTM. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, at onesentencenews.com. And please feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube, and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright. And I'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>